Our guest today on Latin Pulse is Chris Sabatini, Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly and Senior Director of Policy for America's Society, Council of the Americas. Uh, thank you, Rick. We want to talk to you about these upcoming elections in Uruguay. The outcome was a little bit different than polls would have would have told us. The former president, Tabare Vasquez, uh, almost came back, um, was just a, a hair short of, of enough votes in the first round. Uh, are we looking forward to him being elected again? Is, is there any push toward the other candidate of the, the National Party? No, it's, it's clearly his to lose in this case. As you said, Rick, he, um, you know, he, he looked a little weaker going into, according to the polls, going into the first round uh, on October 20, 26th. And, um, you know, it was it, which was a surprise, given the popularity of the incumbent president, who's also of the same party of Tabaré Vázquez, the Frente Amplio. Um, and given his popularity when he left office, he left office as a, because uh, Tabaré Vázquez was the previous president before Mujica, uh, was uh, very popular when he left. So it was a little bit of a surprise that he was running, um, you know, really in the, in the low 40s. Um, leading up, but then he he got a second wind, and as you mentioned, Rick, he came in uh, in the first round with 48 percent, so just a whisker shy, I'm 48 plus, a few, um, just a few whiskers shy of uh, winning in the first round, which was a surprise, given the polls. Are there any themes, any issues that are really driving this, or do they just want um, their former president back? <laughs> I think there are a couple. One is, I mean, all of Uruguayan politics have to be discussed in the concept of that it's a very consensual society and politics. It is, it's always been, um, you know, the, the military government of the seventies and eighties was somewhat of a blip in Uruguay's history. And, you know, if whoever would win, uh, again, it looks like it's going to be Tabaré Vázquez clearly, but will really be, if it were the, even the opposing uh, candidate, it would be really just a, a gentle shift. To give one example, um, one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that the uh, Frente Amplio government passed in the last term, the last five years term under Mojica, was to not just legalize marijuana, but to actually set the uh, state up as a seller of marijuana in pharm- pharmacies. Um, and while the, he, the president bucked public opinion in doing that, um, Lacalle Po, who is the opposition uh, candidate right now, has said that even if he wins, he may roll back the state's role as the vendor of pot, but he's not going to um, probably delegalize or recriminalize uh, marijuana. So it's, these are these are differences of degrees more than more than anything else. But what 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 is driving the the, the election? I think the the differences between the two candidates, Tabaré Vázquez uh, and and Lacalle Po, um, uh, primarily is is sort of a a certain amount of, of, of exhaustion with the, the, the Frente Amplio. It's been in power for 10 years. Uh, a lot of the voters that are expressing their support for La Calle Po are talking about the need for a change. Um, you also see actually that you know, 6% of the voters, according to polls, are going to vote uh, in blank or sort of spoil their ballots. It's a little bit of a protest vote, um, not even so much against uh, the Frente Amplio, but I think about uh, you know the, the uh, National Party, which is a, you know obviously a very a long-standing party in Colorado politics, or so the failure of renewal. Um, and I think there is a certain amount of an age issue here. Um, you know, Mujica is in his 70s. Uh, Tabaré Vázquez is in his 70s. I think, you know, this is going to be a challenge also for the Frente Amplio um, in the next election, is, is how will it renew its leadership? They're basically, the, the 10 years have revolved around two presidents, 
Tabare Vasquez, Mujica, and Tabare Vasquez again, you know, how will it sort of put forward a fresh face um, in, in the next go around? And I think that's a little bit of that. The other issue that came up is the question of security. And again, you have to understand all of this in Uruguay's context. It's not, we're not looking at a security situation akin to, say, Venezuela or Brazil and the Rio and the favelas in Rio. It, it's really quite uh, light compared to other regions. But it was a big issue. And, um, but even in that case, they had a referendum uh, uh, issue on the ballot in October 26th in the first round, but whether to lower the age uh, in which uh, juveniles could be tried as adults. It was sort of a get tough measure, and that lost. So even, you know, again, Uruguay, is, is, it's, it's always a, a little more moderate, a little more modest, and, and a little more um, soft in the way it deals with these things. And that's, I think, the way to understand even this election. It's going to be neck and neck, but, you know, even though the, the country is going to be divided pretty much, look, Taking, going out on a limb and taking a rough guess, probably like 52 to say 35 in the final vote, uh, 52% to 35%. You know, this is not a deeply riven country. We're not looking at Brazil, say, between Aceo Neves and the winner, Dilma Rousseff, or Venezuela between Maduro and Capriles. And, and those were generationally close elections that we had not seen in both of those countries for a very long time. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that brings up the, the case of um, Luis Lacachepeau. He is someone who is running in this election in his 40s, I believe. And um, is he then positioning himself for the next election? He very much can. And there is this issue, too. I mean, he comes from a very um, landed, well-known political family. So, yes, he's a fresh face, but he's not a fresh leader in some ways. I mean, his... his, his uh, uh, genealogical tree is, is very deeply rooted in Uruguayan politics, but clearly this is a man with a long-term uh, political uh, agenda, a long-term political future. And as I say, it will be interesting to see over the next five years how the Frente Amplio sort of uh, tries to reposition itself um, to be able to cultivate a new, a new set of leaders beyond uh, Mujica and Tabaré Vázquez. When he was doing a bit better in the polls, you had written a piece for U.S. News and World Report that said maybe after these two terms of the Frente Amplio, Uruguay is, is ready for a mild course correction. What would be part of that course correction if for some reason he managed to land the, an upset? Um, I think, first of all, um, you know, again, this is all just a matter of minor degrees. So I think the first thing is uh, Uruguay has been, even under the Frente Amplio, the center-left Frente Amplio, it has been increasingly getting closer to the United States. Um, it's negotiated uh, a very close trade agreements, not a free trade agreement, but trade agreements and bilateral treaties. Um, you know, you had the weird spectacle of, of Pepe Mujica, a former leftist guerrilla, who approved one of the most uh, forward-leaning marijuana laws, pushed for it in his country, uh, got a White House visit with President Obama. Um, so they've been very pro-United States, and, and that stems from two things. First, I think the, the innate um, uh, sort of central, uh, objective, moderate view of, of Uruguay and realizing that it's sort of stuck between two giants, Argentina and Brazil. And second, the need to sort of look for alternatives beyond Mercosur. So what would have a course correction under La Calle Po meant? I think we look for a deepening of that relationship with the United States, um, and perhaps even a breaking of, of the ties uh, between Uruguay and Mercosur, which is interesting because Uruguay, Montevideo, is, is the house or the home of the Mercosur um, offices. 
but they've been increasingly dissatisfied with their relationship in Mercosur, first because they're wedged between the two giant neighbors, also because of spats with Argentina over a paper pulp uh, uh, plant that was placed on the Rio de la Plata. So they're not, you know, they're not, they're not terribly satisfied. I think they're also looking for other alternatives. And that, that would have been, I think, I think a Lacayo Po government would have been a little more abrupt in breaking that that relationship with its two neighbors. You know, you've got you've got a growing diversity and even a certain amount of friction among all these proliferating regional organizations. You have Elwa, which is pretty much sort of a dying a much more peaceful death than I think a lot of people expected. Um, but you've got the UNASUR coalition that that you know Brazil helped spawn as a way of containing Chavez. Um, and certainly was became useful in certain moments, uh, whether it was debate over the um, expansion of U.S. military presence in, in Colombia, um, the bombing of the uh, um, uh, Raul Reyes's camps in, in Ecuador. Um, but, you know, the question is, is what we've seen is despite all the talk of harmony and, and greater South American unity is greater divisions. Um, Venezuela clearly has become, uh, gone off on a different path. Some of the highest inflation rates in the world. Um, you know, it's it's going again for negative growth. Um, Venezuela, Argentina is not far behind in terms of inflation, in terms of uh, economic troubles, and I think the neighborhood is 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 breaking apart in ways people wouldn't have predicted, say, five years. And the question is, is where Uruguay will go in that? And Uruguay has always been, if you will, sort of a, a silent um, but responsible partner in that neighborhood. But I think it's going to find itself much more, it's going to be much more difficult for Uruguay under Tabaré Vázquez to cast its, his lot with a lot of these governments. I mean, he, he held his tongue and negotiated a very good, uh, ultimately productive compromise with Argentina over the paper pulp uh, plants uh, on the Uruguay side. But, you know, as these frictions become more evident and as I think the economic systems of both uh, Argentina and, and Venezuela risk becoming unraveling, and Brazil risks stagnation should it not course correct on its economy. I think you're going to see a Uruguay that's going to cast its law a little bit more with the Pacific Alliance, countries of Chile and Peru and Colombia, because it has a lot more. I mean, we're looking those cases, you know, growth, yes, orthodox economics, but also with a with a with a conscience. And I think Uruguay is going to find itself much more, even under the Frente Amplio government, because of Tabaré and even Pepe Mujica were ultimately pragmatists. I think you'll see the, the Uruguay casting its lot a lot more with those um, countries. Even though it doesn't have a Pacific coast, I wouldn't be surprised if it uh, starts to cozy up to the Pacific Alliance. Well, that's where all the growth is coming, right? Exactly. And it seems to be on a much more uh, pragmatic and structured and practical uh, course than the other countries. Let's talk a little bit about marijuana policy. And I know that sounds interesting to most folks who don't talk about marijuana policy, but... <laughs> Some would say that, that Uruguay has not done a very good job of selling this to the general public. It's not as popular as some would believe. And that they haven't gone as far as a Colorado, for instance, of, of actually getting the product to the market. That that's been very slow. Well, you know, the difference is, is that it is in, in Uruguay, the state is the seller. Whereas in Colorado, it is a... Um, you know, basically the state just allows it to happen and it's set up under a market in which private uh, sellers and growers market um, in storefronts. So the insertion of the state in this process in Uruguay has slowed it down considerably. The other thing that's happened, and I, don't, I haven't kept track of this, um, but they also allow for um, you know, a fair amount of 
uh, cultivation of marijuana plants by individuals, um, which is different than, than Colorado and Washington. But you know, the, probably the best comparison is between Uruguay and Washington State, which also has been very slow off the mark in getting marijuana to market. And that's in that case, it's because they're trying to figure out the nuances of how to regulate it. Whereas I think Colorado's strategy was more to sort of open up the floodgates, let a number of vendors open up stores, and now they're wrestling with issues of edibles, you know, how, how to market or how to restrict and, and regulate, uh, you know, edible marijuana that is, you know, could be confused with candy or could find its way into the wrong hands. Since we're talking about um, health, Tabari Vasquez is known for his uh, anti-tobacco laws. Are we going to see more initiatives against tobacco in a new Vasquez administration, or are there other health issues that you think may come to the fore? Well, you know, first, he's, he's a practicing oncologist. Uh, he actually, even when he was president, he still visited a clinic and continued his practice. So he's very committed to health care. Um, you know, that's a tough call. I mean, there's also the issue of, of how will you regulate marijuana so that it doesn't, because it's largely smoked has the same uh, deleterious effect on, on pulmonary uh, capacity as, as uh, tobacco smoke. I don't know what his position on that, but I think it's a fair question of how he will, you know, reconcile his anti-tobacco position with his party's uh, more lenient uh, marijuana position. Um, so who knows? I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, like, say, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and others, is, you know, Ken Tabare Vasquez as a doctor, uh, really a leader in many ways, preceded uh, Bloomberg and others in many ways of pushing for uh, tobacco legislation and pushing hard, whether he will sort of become a leader on this issue on world health issues overall, whether it's um, obesity and junk food or, or other sorts of matters, which are really coming to the fore now. We're seeing a lot of push for you know, more healthy standards for uh, food, uh, restrictions on junk food. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see if he really parlays his, his experience, his knowledge and his passion for health into uh, doing other things beyond just Uruguay uh, in the world community. What other policies are you predicting may come about with a Vasquez administration? One thing, and we, we in America's quarterly run a, a, an annual uh, social inclusion index. And um, that compiles a set of data that looks at everything from access to uh, secondary school to uh, poverty, all disaggregated by race and ethnicity and gender. And while Uruguay finishes on top the last two years, uh, and in fact it edged out, the, se the second year we did it, it edged out Chile because of its very progressive rights for the protections of women and LGBT rights, um, where Chile is much more conservative and much more, I would argue, sort of behind the curve, uh, not just uh, regionally but also globally. Um, but um, what's interesting is, is that there, one of the things that Uruguay does really lack is, is um, investment it's in education. It ranks as one of the middling in the pack in terms of percent of GDP spent on education. And Tabare Vasquez, in his first term, uh, made a huge to-do and invested a lot of money in the One Laptop Per Child program, which was heavily criticized. Um, I don't know what the status of it is, but there are a number of people who basically were arguing that you know, he was investing in a toy for which a lot of children that didn't include uh, uh, the, the necessary training and for teachers to be able to help students implement and use it. Um, and one of the other complaints was you know, they were funding this high-end uh, uh, teaching tool, even if so it's not a toy, but a teaching tool, with when there were basic, you know, basic supplies were still lacking in a lot of these schools. So I would hope 
given a president that has been so committed to education, they'll go back and revisit this and think about how to really sort of staff up and bulk up, you know, the infrastructure, the bricks and mortar of these schools. Thank you so much. Chris Sabatini, the editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly and the senior director of policy for America Society, Council of the Americas, our guest today on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York. Thank you, Rick.